This is our reading uh, for Ray's message that he's about to give. From Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through to 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Some of you might remember the days, but I can remember when I was young, uh, sitting in the back of the car as mum or dad would uh, drive us around, and if they ever needed petrol, you'd drive into the petrol station. And back in those days, it wasn't self-serve. You didn't get out your car to fill it up. They had attendants at the petrol station. Can you remember that? Anyone remember those days? Yeah. They would actually rock up, you pull up and you just wind down the window, how much do you want? $20 thanks and you give them a paper bill, (laughs) not a plastic one, or fill her up and check the water and oil while you're at it Um, and off you go, you don't even have to get out your car. You were filled up and fueled up, ready to go. I've titled this first study, Hope Filled and Hope Fueled. Filled with hope and fueled by hope. Because as we'll see, both in this study and throughout the letter of Colossians, it's hope with which the Colossians have been filled with in Christ himself, and it's hope which fuels the Colossian believers in their faith and their love. Hope filled and hope fueled. Did you all get a little booklet? Can we get the booklets, please? We have actually got booklets with notes and things, so let's... Let's do that right now. Hands up if you didn't get a booklet. Everyone. Thanks, Jonathan, for pulling the booklets together. We better use them. I just saw people pulling out notes and things. I thought, great, they're keen. You can write in something and there's even some dot points for you to... Hope-filled and hope-fueled. Thank you, James. Uh, What we learn first in this opening passage of Colossians is what it is Paul gives thanks for. We've just sung, I asked Shane and Sarah to sing, my heart is filled with thanks before we started. Because thanksgiving is actually where Paul starts his letter. Not at the end of something, but at the, at the beginning. And we're often told in scripture to give thanks to God, aren't we? And sometimes, like in the Psalms, it's give thanks to the Lord. Why? Simply because of who he is, not what he's done. Because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So you give thanks to God, not because he's done good stuff, but just because he is good. But out of his goodness and love, he acts, doesn't he? So we do thank him for what he's done. So I think it's fitting that we actually begin this uh, winter word, as we've just sung, with thanksgiving, because that's exactly how Paul starts this letter. In fact, every letter Paul writes, or to every church he writes, all but one, he gives thanks to God for them. 
Every church that Paul writes to in the New Testament, one of the first things he does is give thanks to God for them. There's only one. That's your homework at morning tea, afternoon tea time to work out which one he didn't give thanks to God for. Um, so even before we open up the passage, I want to ask you, just rhetorically, in your own minds, what is it you're thankful for? Think of your own church, the people, that is. Got a lovely building here and a lovely view, but think of the people. I met the people of Norton Summit yesterday. I was preaching here yesterday morning. What is it you give thanks to God for? Who is it you give thanks to God for? And why? I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul has never attended your church. He didn't establish this church here in Norton Summit. He didn't establish Curry Baptist, where I serve. But he actually didn't establish the church in Colossae either. He's never been there. And yet he knows enough of them and of God to give thanks to God for them. And we're going to hear exactly what it is he give thanks to God for in a minute. But how would it be? It's actually Epaphras who probably heard the gospel from Paul, maybe in Ephesus, and he's gone back to Colossae and he's preached the gospel to the people there and they've believed in Jesus Christ. And now Epaphras has gone to join Paul, probably in Rome, in prison, and he's sharing with Paul everything that's happening in Colossae. And so Paul writes this letter because Epaphras has heard the gospel, shared it, and now he's gone to Paul to tell him about it. What is it that someone like Epaphras in your church would tell Paul about what's happening in your place that Paul would give thanks to God for? Timothy's with him. Timothy's probably the one writing the letter uh, for him, what we call an amenuensis. He's like the scribe for Paul. So he says at the beginning, it's uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. But it's Epaphras who is sharing the news between Paul and this Colossian church. What is it Paul would give thanks to God for, for your church? Interesting question, isn't it? It's worth jotting a couple of things down, I reckon. Sadly, I've been in some places, little pastors' gatherings here and there, which are meant to be encouraging times, um, but I've actually gone away sometimes, very sadly, discouraged, because what it ended up becoming was a bit of a whinge session from pastors about their congregations. Sadly, pastors do that sometimes, and congregations get up their nose. But we were meant to be encouraging one another in the word and the truth of Christ. There wasn't a lot of thanksgiving. And I think as a pastor, it's really helpful to say, what is it I'm thankful for for this flock that God's given me to care for? Not just, oh, what are all the hardships they give me as pastor? No, what am I thankful for? I don't think we need to be bashful about it. Um, it's not, nor is it an opportunity to be proud, saying, look at my church, isn't it great? No, I think we can just with sober judgment give thanks to God for his good gifts to us. The people are his gifts to us. The body of Christ. That's who we're talking about. Hopefully we're thankful for something to do with the body of Christ, aren't we? The family of God in our midst. I'm sure there's plenty Paul would want to warn us about and correct us as well in our own churches. But I'm sure there'd better be something he'd be thankful about as well. Let me tell you a few things just to get your mind stirring. For where I serve, I'm really grateful for the faith we share as a family of God and the generations of faith that are reflected in the families in that church. 
and the intergenerational culture, young and old, sharing together, talking together, learning from one another. Years ago, one of our young mums said, this is such a great place to have kids because there's all these other older women I can go to and if I've got any troubles, I can speak to them and there's wisdom and experience there I can lean, lean on and they're willing to share. Wonderful to have young and old in a church. I'm grateful for the unity and the fellowship we share and at the moment, particularly amongst the leadership, we've got a great camaraderie and fellowship and unity. Not every church enjoys that, do they? Hasn't always been the same at Corrie, where I am. I'm grateful for the recognition that we have as a church family that we depend on the word of God and upon God himself for everything and don't lean on our own strength or understanding. I'm sure there's others you could think of for your church, but you get the picture. And it's good, I think, to stop and consider and give thanks to God for your own church and maybe some individuals. And why not actually let some people know, this is what I'm really thankful for. You know how encouraging it would be to go up to someone and say, Shane, I really thank God for you and your wife and the ministry you share with us. What an encouragement. Not just that I'm thankful for them, I'm thankful to God for them because they're a gift from God. Shane himself said, this is not about us, it's about Christ. It's really good to acknowledge that. What is it Paul gives thanks for? We're going to hear about that in a minute. The very next thing Paul does, and I'm not going to pinch Randall's thunder, but this first half of chapter 1 is a prayer of thanksgiving, and then it's a prayer of petition. He actually prays for the church that he's writing to. I'm not going to open that up. I'm going to let Randall do that next. He's got the second half. But don't be afraid to pinch Paul's prayers for your own church. Give thanks to God for your church and then have a look from verse 9 onwards and we'll hear it in the next session. What is it Paul prays for this church? Paul prays some wonderful prayers. And they're not just, oh, we need a bit more money for the air conditioning. It's about kingdom matters, eternal matters, growing in the strength of Christ and boldness and unity and maturity. It's really wonderful stuff. Opens our own hearts and minds to be kingdom-minded for our own churches. I reckon if we were a fly on the wall or had a bug in the brain of people as they were praying, we'd get a pretty good insight as to their understanding of God and humanity. The things we pray for tell us a lot about ourselves and what we're trusting God for and what we think we can do in our own strength. It tells us something of our own horizons. Are we short-sighted? Come on in, guys. Don't let me embarrass you by drawing everyone's attention to the back of the room. It's good to have you. We're thankful to God for you. Are our prayers just sort of shopping list type prayers? I want a good day. I want to win my soccer game on the weekend. I want good weather. I want to pass that exam. I want my kids to grow up well. Nothing wrong with that. But is that as far as it goes? Or are we kingdom-minded and eternal with our prayers? Are our minds set on things above which is what Paul tells us in Colossians 3, or just on things below. Paul knows even his apostleship, the fact that he has this ministry, is only by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's not doing this in his own strength. He's not doing it because one day he came up with a good idea and thought, oh, I'm going to go share the gospel with all these other people. No, God actually had to come to him 
If it wasn't for the grace of God, Paul wouldn't be doing any of this. So even the fact he's writing this letter, it's by the will of God. So his horizons are far bigger than just a horizontal, humanistic mindset. And it's encouraging for us to be the same. Who are we? What have we become? By our own strength or by the will of God and his grace? Our answer to that question will probably help determine what we pray for. And what we pray for probably shows us a little bit of our answer to that question. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Heavenly Father. And the very mention of God our Father, he says, I give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And what is it Paul gives thanks for? Well, two things in particular. He gives thanks for their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love, the love that you have for all the saints. Pretty simple. Their faith and their love. But pretty substantial as well, aren't they? Paul doesn't take anyone's faith for granted. He gives thanks to God for it. He doesn't take their love for one another for granted. He gives thanks to God for it. He knows their faith and their love come from God. And it doesn't matter how good a preacher Dan is here at Norton Summit or I am at Coro or pastor anywhere else, it's not actually us that establishes and grows your faith and love as God's people. That comes from God. It doesn't matter how charismatic a pastor you've got or how good a preacher or how good the coffee is, as important as some of those things are, maybe. And it's good to have a good preacher, isn't it? And Someone with a bit of life and the spirit filling them up. But Paul gives thanks to God for these believers in Colossae and the faith and love that he has granted them. Hopefully the pastor, preacher, whoever has something to do with that. Like they're, a, they're a good means of God to actually bring that about. But it's all from God. It's only through this word that comes that has been the word of truth of this you have heard in the word of truth through the gospel which has come to you. That's what's brought about their faith and their love and as we're about to hear their hope. Because as we go on to verse 5, we learn the very reason for their faith and love is the hope laid up for them in heaven. And so if you know anything of the New Testament, you'll know that Paul's got this little trilogy of faith and hope and love that crops up time and time again, and here it is once more. But it doesn't always work in the same direction as it does here. In 1 Timothy, for example, the goal of Paul's charge is love. That is, the end point is love. Of his teaching and the gospel, of what he's encouraging Timothy and for Timothy to encourage others. But here, it's the hope laid up for them in heaven which actually spurs these believers on in their faith in Christ and their love for one another. The NIV captures it well, putting it this way. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Where does their faith and love come from? Where is it, how is it motivated? From the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. Now, when you hear that phrase, faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you, whether you think of the bouncy kind of spring, like a trampoline, like some of the young kids are out the back trying to do at the moment, or a wellspring, like a fountain from which springs forth water, 
It's the hope stored up for us in heaven that energizes the faith and love of these Colossian believers. We'll have a look at what this hope entails in a moment, but for now, it's hope which puts a spring or bounce in the step of these believers and in our walk of faith and in our love for one another. The hope laid up for us in heaven fuels our faith and our love, all of it God's gift of grace to us. Take away the hope and the faith and love will diminish because their faith and love spring from the hope laid up for us in heaven. God uses a carrot, the carrot of hope, the hope of glory, rather than a stick saying, come on, you've got to get on in your faith and you've got to love each other more. He doesn't use a stick. It's from the hope laid up for us in heaven that draws us on in faith and love. Just as it was for Christ, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, didn't he, despising the shame. I think we could say it was the future hope of what lay before him, which was full of joy, which helped him endure the cross, despising the shame. What do you call a person who has no hope? They're hopeless. They're in a state of despair. If you have no hope, you're despairing. There's plenty of things in life, aren't there, that actually try to rob us of our hope, cause us to despair, try to diminish, whether it's bit by bit or all at once, everything comes crashing down, whether it's suffering long-term or something big all at once, unanswered prayer, how long have you been praying? How long, O oh Lord? And it's still happening. You start to lose hope, don't you? Sin and guilt will rob us of hope. Death, grief, loneliness, striving to get somewhere but never quite reaching our goals, lack of assurance. Paul knew all those things personally. He was afflicted, persecuted and perplexed, wasn't he? But not driven to despair. Jeremiah knew something of that too. In Lamentations 3, do you know the great verses? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. Do you know it comes just before that? Have a listen to this. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Ever been there? Your soul bereft of peace? Like there's nothing there? Your endurance, you're just completely exhausted and run out physically, mentally, spiritually? And your hope has perished. That's a significant thing for a prophet of God to say, isn't it? And yet he says, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall is like poison to him. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down with me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. So his hope has perished. 
But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. What is it he calls to mind? This great truth that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. I'm hopeless. I'm almost at the point of despair and yet there's something of the truth of God and the word of God that keeps me and gives me hope. Not my situation. That looked hopeless. But I know God is good all the time. And he's always faithful and his love never ceases. And tomorrow when I get up, there'll be enough mercy for me for that day because there's new mercies tomorrow for that morning and the next day and the next. Now, Lamentations was written 2,500 years ago. Colossians was written almost 2,000 years ago. There's so much we can learn from this, isn't there? Just in this one thanksgiving prayer of Paul's even. And there is so much we face today. I'm sure you, if you haven't lived longer than, I don't know how long, there'd be things that, where your hope is starting to diminish. Where you've wrestled, maybe on the brink of despair. Where you've said, my soul is bereft of peace. And with all of that, there's the external pressures that do that for us. And there's also internal pressures and within the church even. For the Colossians, what Paul had heard, what he knew about from Epaphras, the saints there, the church, were facing pressures from within the church and outside the church in the world. Within the church, there was some erroneous Jewish teaching to do with the law. Okay, Not every church and every synagogue and every preacher could be trusted to preach the true word of God. There was some dodgy stuff out there, just as there is today. And there was also pressure from the world outside. There was the pagan culture and context around them. Polytheism, where there was all these other gods being worshipped. And some of that was pretty attractive, actually. And there was the worship of angels and idolatry and immorality were rife as well. We're going to hear more about those things in the coming days. But whilst the content of those challenges and pressures might be different from Paul's day to ours, we do live in a different time, a different culture, a different place we still face similar pressures and similar dangers within the church and outside. We can all have some funny ideas about the gospel and what Christian life should look like. And the world is sort of hemming us in in every way, isn't it? And there's lots of voices out there and lots of images, not just for our kids but for us as well, that rob us of our time, our energy and our hope and actually take us off on some different tangents that are not helpful. But we also have a similar answer to those battles, similar to what Paul shares for us here. It's the hope laid up for us in heaven which keeps these believers, and hopefully us, firm in their faith, knowing that in the world and in this life, or this world and this life is not the main event. This is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. That, only, that not only keeps us from despairing in this life, but also keeps us looking to the eternal things, the new heavens and the new earth, trusting in God's goodness and faithfulness and his promises to us. Promises of what? Well, we're going to hear more about it. I'll keep saying that. Christ himself is the object and content of Colossians' faith, isn't he? We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. They have believed Jesus is Lord. Remember that word Christ is not his name, it's his title. 
They believe Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God, who comes and reigns on the throne of David, on a throne that will never end, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's their faith in him which gives them the hope laid up for them in heaven. This hope is grounded in Jesus Christ himself. It's resurrection hope. The risen Lord Jesus, having been buried with Christ and being raised with him. He alone is their hope and their glory. We're going to hear a bit later on that this hope, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the hope laid up for them in heaven. But actually, whilst it's in heaven, it's actually right here now in us. You know, Christ dwells in you if you're a believer in him. He dwells in you. He abides in you. If you believe in me, Jesus says, my Father and I, we will come and tabernacle. We will dwell in your heart together with the Spirit. And it's that indwelling of Christ, Christ in you, that is the ground for our assurance of this hope of glory. This hope of glory is not some wishy-washy, oh, it might happen, it might not. And I've known Christian believers who one day feel that absolutely and other days they think, I don't think God the Father wants anything to do with me at all. And they lose that assurance. But Christ abiding in you is the grounds and confidence we can have for that hope of glory. The hope that when Christ who is your life appears, that's an amazing statement in itself, isn't it? When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not just Christ who's going to appear in glory. All the saints are going to appear with him in glory. You ever been to the theatre, been to a musical or a great drama and they're all on stage and at the end of the, the show, the, the, you know, all the characters come up and you go forward and they get an applause and then others come forward and then the main characters come up and takes the final bow and then they all go... It's not just going to be Christ on the stage on that day. He's going to be that main actor that then puts his arms out and gets everyone to come forward and take a bow with him, so to speak, as we all appear with him in glory. That's the hope from which their faith springs from and their love springs from. Some of us here would have read a book by Jeff Bingham called Love is the Spur. Love is what spurs us on. The love of Christ constrains us. And it's true. That's, that's, uh, that title that Jeff gave that book was in contrast to a line in a poem by John Milton called Fame is the Spur. Because for fallen humanity, that's what it is, isn't it? Fame, ambition, achievement. Look at me. That's what keeps us going. That's what motivates us. But here it's not fame and nor is it love. It's actually hope which is the spur. Hope spurs on our faith and our love in Christ Jesus. This Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope of being presented before God the Father, holy and blameless. Hope of being in communion with God and with one another. In unity, there is, where there is no Greek, nor Jew, nor circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, which we share in now, and one day we're going to see it in all its beauty and wonder, with no obstacles at all, in great clarity. Hope that includes full redemption, full forgiveness, 
together with the inheritance of those who are given the full right to the sons of God. Hope that amounts to the whole, the fullness of Christ. Not just a bit of him, but the fullness of Christ. And we are filled in him. That's something worth waiting for, isn't it? And something worth rejoicing in even now. It's the promise of all of that. That hope which spurs the Colossian saints on day by day in their faith and in their love. And I guess the question is, is that what gets us up in the morning? This great hope of glory that we can enjoy now in Christ and one day we'll see by sight, not just by faith. Have you been filled in him with all the fullness of Christ? Is that what fuels you in your own faith and your own love? Or are you feeling like you need a little top up? Well, I want to tell you something. We come to days like this, don't we? In one sense, to be encouraged and have some sort of top up. But Paul tells us here in Colossians that you have been filled in him. That's what we need to see. That's what the top up is, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we'd actually see what we already are and already have in Christ. All the fullness of God. Doesn't always feel that way, does it? I'm a slow riser in the morning. My daughters will remind me of that, so does my wife. We're very present people, aren't we? And I think our culture is even more so drawing us that way. We live in the moment and for the moment. Like how many people registered in the last two days rather than three weeks ago? Just for these, I can tell you how many. (laughs) Even some of the speakers. Hmm. Wasn't me. Um, We barely think what's coming next, do we? Let alone what's on the other side of death and glory until we're confronted with it. Maybe that's why there's so many of us today struggling with anxiety and depression because we're just living for the moment and we don't have any hope for what's to come. We're not even thinking about what's to come. But without thinking about it, we've lost our hope. We've lost what fuels us. Maybe that's why there's so many pastors who are burning out and leaving the ministry. In Baptist circles, I can only speak because I've heard the stats. A couple of weeks ago, we had a sort of beyond COVID conversation with a few Baptist pastors. And one of our leaders said, well, in the last two years, and it's not just to do with COVID, but 17 out of 18 pastors who have left a role in a church, only one of them has gone back into another church position. So there's 17 pastoral gaps. Now, some of them have gone into other ministry, parachurch ministry. Others have gone into the office, Baptist leadership in the Baptist churches. But that's a big gap to fill. Maybe we don't have much to look forward to in ministry or in life. That'd be pretty sad, wouldn't it? Maybe we don't know what we have to look forward to, the hope laid up for us in heaven. Maybe we don't really know and appreciate what it is that's laid up for us in heaven. That so fuels us and fills us that when we get a bump here or there, actually what comes spilling out is more of this same hope and we share that with others so that they might be filled and fueled with this hope in Christ. I often share with young couples who are about to be married, um, if we don't know, if we don't have our eyes fixed on the great wedding banquet of the bride and the lamb, that great image that we have in Revelation and Ephesians 5, 
Christ and his bride. If that's not the, one of the goals of our hope, one of the images we have of the future, then our wedding day here on earth is about as good as it gets. That's why we spend so much money on it, don't we? And the people selling the flowers and everything, the reception centres, they just add another zero to everything and they just break it in. But if that day goes, falls apart, because every little bit's got to be, you had brides like that, pastors? <laughs> Everything's got to be perfect and if it falls apart, all their hopes come crashing down because they haven't got their hopes set on the true bride of Christ and our true husband. Because we think that day is about as big and as good as it gets. That is glor- that's as glorious as we could ever be. <laughs> when in fact that's just a picture of the glory of Christ and his bride. Over the past months and couple of years, some of you know our family situation. Our daughter's undergone some neurosurgical procedures. She's had 10 in the last two years. And as that time's gone on, we've learnt lots of things about what it means to walk by faith and to live in hope. And we've also learned a little term called courage fatigue. Ever heard that? Often happens with chronic pain, often happens with brain injury. They get to the point where you've endured so much and you've been hoping and waiting and longing for a change and it never happens that you just actually lose any hope. You lose the ability to keep on going. You're almost afraid to hope anymore because you don't want to be disappointed because you have been so much. One of my daughters asked me to go see Spider-Man. Uh, the latest Marvel movie in the Spider-Man. I think it's the third one. Of Sp- I hadn't even seen the first two. It was a bit sad because they all sort of came together in one movie. But that was called No Way Home. And my daughter dragged me along. or I think I dragged her along in the end. Um, and Spider-Man's girlfriend in that movie, a girl called MJ, she's not, very, not a naturally positive person. In fact, she admits she's a glass-half-empty kind of girl. Maybe because of too many disappointments in her past. Maybe she's got courage fatigue because she lives by the motto, if you expect disappointment, then you won't be disappointed. Think about that for a moment. If you only ever expect disappointment, you'll never be disappointed. Now, we can feel like that sometimes, can't we? Let down, deflated, disappointed. Maybe you've gone through suffering for a long time yourself and you've got courage fatigue. I think Jeremiah would probably fit that bill pretty close. Courage fatigue. Some of us here know and have been praying for a good friend and retired pastor who's been struggling with cancer and his treatment and what that entails. He knows the Father, he trusts the Lord in it all, but early on when he was really struggling with the side effects of his treatment, he said, I'm no superhero, I'm battling here. He was battling with the pain and the debilitation and he and his wife have asked us that we would pray against the despair that creeps in and takes over. Because he thinks maybe there will never be any relief from the pain that he's feeling. Is that courage fatigue? Possibly. Is it faithlessness? No, I don't think so. That's just a real man in faith, struggling in pain, wrestling in his faith, crying out to God and asking us to intercede for him. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. 
He is desperate not to succumb to despair. He doesn't want to end up living by MJ's motto, if I just expect disappointment, then I'll never be disappointed. He is fighting against that. Because that is no way to live, is it? Just expect disappointment and you'll be okay. You'll never be disappointed. That's not a hope-filled life, is it? And nor is there actually any way to die. Nor is there any way to love. It's one thing to go into marriage and life, you know, without too many expectations on one another. You don't want to go in with an illusion. But unlike Spider-Man, the name of the movie was No Way Home, we do have a way home. We know the way home. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, hasn't he? And that hope has been guaranteed as Christ abides in us. Hope in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Unlike MJ and her reluctance to expect anything, her resistance to hope, the hope we have in Christ does not disappoint us. You know that that verse from Romans 5? It's a sure thing because it's anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his love by his spirit. Unlike MJ's hero and saviour, Spider-Man, who has to put on a suit and take it off to be supercharged, no, our lives are hid with Christ in God. And when he who is our life appears, then we will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. The hope laid up for us in heaven. And it's sure, it's secure, it's kept and guarded, it's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. That's the hope you have, actually. Did you know that in Christ? It's the hope I have. Even when everything around me seems completely hopeless, it's what we're given. And I trust and pray it's the hope you have in Jesus Christ as well. Or I trust and pray these few days that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts, pinching Paul's prayer from Ephesians, to see the riches of the hope that he's called us to. Such that our faith springs from that hope and our love for one another as well.